0: As reality. And so I want for us to pull this apart for a second. God tells Gideon, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. It's not like this big essay that God gives him that he has some objections to. He makes this one simple sentence, and Gideon's got two objections already to it. The first thing he says is, the Lord is with you. And Gideon's like, the Lord? What are you talking about, the Lord? The Lord? I don't know if you noticed in that response in verse 13, he kind of starts out polite and gets sarcastic really quickly. He goes, please, sir. And then he goes on, he says, the Lord, what, what are you talking about? This is something my parents talk about, my grandparents, you know, God who brought us out of Egypt. But look, where is he now? We're oppressed by the Midianites. Look, here I am threshing wheat in a wine press. What are you talking about, God? Like, I I don't know if I believe in this Lord that you're talking about here in this moment. And God's response to him is kind of interesting. He says to him in verse 14, if I can find it, he says, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the power of Midian. Am I not sending you? The truth is, we struggle like Gideon, and we doubt and we question God. And in this moment, God wants us to realize, God wanted Gideon to realize the reality of the situation is that God is real. So Gideon's like, hey, what about these Midianites? If the Lord was real, why would he allow the Midianites to come and oppress us? And God says to him, hey, I'm here to deliver you from them. Am I not sending you? He's like, hey, Gideon, don't you get this? That's, why I'm, that's the very reason that I'm here. So Gideon doesn't skip a beat. He goes into objection number two. He shifts gear to objection number two, which is the statement, mighty warrior. He's like, mighty warrior, hey, you've got the wrong guy here. Okay, even if the Lord is real, you've got the wrong guy here. Here I am, and I don't know if he caught his objection again, I'm from the weakest tribe in Israel, I am the uh, youngest kid in my family, here I am threshing wheat in a wine press, a wine press is for wine, I'm in this wine press because it's sunken down into the ground so nobody can see me, you know, tapping away just enough to eat. I don't see no mighty warrior here. And much in the same way, we struggle, we doubt and question who God is calling us to be. But I love God's response to Gideon on this one. Look at me with verse 16 again. It says this, But I will be with you, the Lord said to him. You will strike Midian down as if it were one man. Again, this is an army of hundreds of thousands of men. And he says, I'm going to be with you and you're going to strike them down like they're just one man. And the promise to us, the promise to Gideon The reality that we need to know and understand as we struggle with who God is calling us to be is that God is with us. We're nothing without God. None of these heroes are anything without God. It is God who makes us mighty. It is God who is undefeatable. It's God who is the ultimate power and source of life. And we're reminded that here in Gideon's story. He's like, yeah, you're probably right, Gideon. You would be nothing, but I am with you. You need to know that, you need to understand that. So Gideon goes on, if we were to read further on in the story, Gideon goes on to ask for a sign. Now interestingly, this is very similar to the call of Moses. If you look at the call of Moses at the burning bush and this this account of Gideon, very similar in how it plays out. They kind of go back and forth with God and then ask for a sign. God gives Gideon a sign like he gave Moses. And then in that moment, Gideon finally, as God disappears after giving this sign, Gideon's like, that was God. Like, this is for real. Okay, okay, this is God. Like, this is good. Good things are happening. Well, God comes and gives him some instruction, which I want for you to read. Very interesting story found in verse 25. It goes on to say this. Read with me. On that very night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull and a second bull, seven years old. Then tear down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. These are both places of worship, pagan worship. Build a well-constructed altar to the Lord, your God, on top of this rock. Take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his male servants and did what the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city, he did not do it in the daytime, he did it at night. Now, this is a serious story, but I find it just a little bit humorous, okay? So here is Gideon, and he's instructed to do this stuff by God. And he decides that he's not going to do it during the daytime because he doesn't want the opposition of, of the people of the city, which, yeah, that's fair. But I wonder if he really thought he could get away with doing what he did. Okay, so picture with me. Gideon goes, gets 10 of his servants, and they go and they get this bull to pull over this these two, like this idol and this really tall pole. And then they have to build a well-constructed altar and take the wood of this big old idle pole, Asherah pole thing, chop it up, put it on top, and then get a bull. I don't know if you've seen a bull lately, but it's bigger than a cow. They get this bull, chuck it up on top of this altar, and then light it up on fire. And apparently nobody noticed until morning, but they must have woken up in the morning and been like, is there steak for breakfast, right? So something's different. They noticed that. So there wasn't a chance that Gideon was going to get away with this, but the men of the city, they wake up in the morning, they see all that's happened. You know, there's this smoldering carcass of a bull there on this, on this altar, and they want revenge. And so they finally do some investigating. They find out it's Gideon, and they come to him, and they're like, hey, you're going to have to pay. You know, we're going to, we're going to deal with you for tearing down our idols. And, and Gideon's dad in this moment steps in and says, hey, no, if Baal is real... He can figure this out with my son my, himself. He can, he can figure this out himself. And so that name Jerubbabel comes from that incident. At that time was when he was renamed because what his father said was, let Baal contend. That's what Jer- Jerubbabel means. It means let Baal contend. And what I want you to see here is it's actually a really great point. God, Gideon had to remove and replace the idols before God was able to use him in powerful ways. And it's much true in the same way in our lives. God is able to move powerfully when the idols in our lives are removed and replaced. It's not just enough to remove the idols in our lives. Now, when I say idol, obviously I'm not talking about an Asherah pole or an idol to Baal. But there's things in our lives that we put up as important or more important than God. That's what we're talking about. And I don't know what those things are for you, but we all have things that we lean towards worshiping other than God. One of the things that one of the resources we use around here is a resource, a Bible study called the Gospel DNA. And the way they describe it is that worship is a hose that is continually on in your life, you can't turn it off. And the question is, where are you pointing that hose? Are you pointing it towards God, or are you pointing it towards something else, a relationship? Your finances, your comfort, your hobby. I don't know what you're pointing it towards, but the, the reminder here in Gideon's story is a very sobering one, is that God is able to move powerfully when the idols in our lives are not just removed, but they're also replaced. So let's talk about what happens next. What happens next is Gideon goes out and he's, he knows that God's calling him to get the people ready to fight the Midianites, but he's still not sure. And so he says, God, please be patient with me. Give me another sign. And so he goes to God and, and he says, hey, I'm going to take this fleece, which is like a sponge, and I'm going to put it out in the ground and I ask you to make the sponge wet and the ground around it dry. So God does that that evening. And he says, okay, maybe that was a fluke. God, can we reverse that? I want to come out in the morning and I want the ground to be wet and I want the sponge to be dry, the fleece to be dry. And God does that, and Gideon's like, okay, okay, I got it. I got to follow you. So he goes out, and he starts assimilating an army, and he does a pretty good job. He gets 32,000 guys together. Again, 32,000 guys versus hundreds of thousands of men. The Bible tells us that their camels were too many to count, which means it was hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Midianites, okay? So 32,000. Versus multiple hundreds of thousands, and yet God comes to him in that moment as he's assembling this army and says, hey, Gideon, this is too much. He, and he starts to disassemble their army. I want you to read with me verse uh, chapter 7, sorry, verse 2. It's a really awesome verse. This is God's interaction with Gideon as he's, in, as he's assembl- assembling this army. He says, the Lord... Said to Gideon, You have too many people for me to hand the Midianites over to you, or else Israel might brag, I did it myself. Isn't that a great verse? And so, in this moment, what God instructs Gideon to do is he says, Hey, tell anybody who's scared to go home. So, Gideon gets up and is like, Hey, anybody scared, feel free to go home. And his army goes from 32,000 to 10,000. So it's gotten a little bit smaller. And he's like, okay, thanks, God. And God's like, no, no, it's still too big. And so they go through this other vetting process. Eventually, Gideon ends up with 300 people. Now, let that sink in. You've got 300 versus hundreds of thousands of people. And as I read this story and as I look at that, I'm reminded of, of a, a point that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, but I'm going to use it again. God likes bad odds. God is in the business of bad odds because it's when the odds are stacked against him that there is no other way we can credit somebody other than God for what he does next. Now, this isn't me getting up to give you a health and wealth prosperity message, but I do want you to know that when the deck is stacked against you, God is able to move in amazing ways and powerful ways. And it may not always be the way that you planned it or sorted it out to be, but just know that God is in the business of bad odds. And I believe that some of you here today need to hear that, need to be reminded of that, that that's how he works, that's how he operates. And so the story goes on. Gideon takes these 300 and they go and divide up on the ridges of the mountains around the Midianite camp. And, and before he does that, he asks God for one more sign. Again, he asks for a sign. God gives him a sign. This guy has a dream, and he overhears it. And so anyway, he goes up, takes these 300 men, divide them up, and they go up onto the hill. And what they have is they have these pitchers, these clay pitchers, these jars with a torch, a lit torch inside of them, a fire inside of them. And then they have these trumpets. And what they do on Gideon's signal, they smash the, jars, the lights come out, they make a big cry, war cry, and they blow their trumpets. And God uses that to create chaos amongst the Midianites. And they literally, it tells us in the scriptures, they start just slaying each other. Like God creates this spirit of, of confusion that goes amongst them, and they just start like freaking out and just killing each other and then they flee out towards the desert and in that moment Gideon gets all the army he he summons all the people of Israel to chase after them and they have this great victory they capture the kings and it's this great big deal and I wish I really wish that I could tell you that's the end of the story but it's not because if you read on in Gideon's story what happens next is a little bit sad and honestly a little bit depressing because Gideon starts to believe in himself, in his own heroism, in his own legend. And he refuses to be made the king. He comes back and the people are celebrating him and they basically ask him to be, to be the king. So he says, no, 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 Israel doesn't have a king, God's our king. But then he goes on and lives like a king. Actually, if you look it up, his son, one of his sons is called Abimelech, which means son of the king. Okay? So he goes on to start to believe in his own legend. But the worst part is found in Joshua chapter 8, verse 27, because what we're told is that Gideon makes an idol, an ephod, out of the gold that he won in the victory. And that it became a stumbling block for Gideon and for all of Israel. They turn back to a new form of idol worship. And so Gideon dies, and we're left with this full circle right back around to where we started. So how do we see Jesus in this story? How do we see him in the book of Judges? Again, it's a very dark time in Israel's history. Well, the beauty of it is that the worst time, the darkest times in our life and and in history, remind us of our need for the light. The light shines brighter in those times. And this is certainly true of Gideon's story, certainly true of the book of Judges. And as we contrast this period, which was right before the period of the kings, which if you look at the life of David, if you look at the life of Solomon, which were probably the best years of Israel, where they had a palace, they had a temple, they had, you know, expanding borders, they had wealth. It reminds us of the bleak contrast of what a king can do. But the kings show us that even they weren't able to, to live up to what was needed. As we're going to see next week in David's story, even David wasn't good enough. He went on to die. And what this reminds us is we need a king, we need a savior, and that savior is Jesus. Again, as we look at this, this hero of of Gideon, we're reminded that he wasn't the ultimate hero. And all all this story reminds us is that Jesus is the ultimate judge, that he is the perfect and unflawed Gideon. He is the judge that, unlike Gideon, doesn't question God repeatedly. Think about how Jesus followed God, followed him to even be obedient to death on a cross. Jesus doesn't get caught up in his own heroic efforts like Gideon. He was humble. I mean, he came and washed his disciples' feet. Jesus didn't end things poorly. Think about Gideon's life. He ended things very poorly. Jesus finished his work. Remember what he said when he died on the cross? It is finished. He ended as a hero. I mean, he didn't end. Thankfully, he rose again. But what I want you guys to see is that all that Gideon's life, all that the judges point us towards is Jesus. The need, the desperate need we have for Jesus. So how do we respond to this message today? How do we respond to the story of Gideon? Well, firstly, I think that we need to go back to the start of our conversation. Remember we talked about doubts at the very start of our conversation and how we have doubts and we struggle sometimes to believe God, that he's real, that he hears us? Well, I just want to finish off the story that I started telling you guys earlier. Because personally, as I think back, 11 years was one of the darker years in my life where I really was questioning God and where he had me and where he wanted me to be long term and whether he even was speaking at all. And I look back now and see nothing but God's goodness and faithfulness in my life. I'm here to stand up in front of you today to say, God is good. As I look back over the last 10 years, I can see how God called me over to, to just do an internship at a church in Houston, and that led from one thing to another, to, to me being hired on staff, to me getting to meet certain people, for me getting to even meet my wife, which was awesome, and then getting on, going on to be, become ordained, and, and then coming up here to uh, help plant a church. I mean, it's been nothing but God's goodness and faithfulness. And as I look back over my life, yes, that was a dark 18 months of my life, but it, led, it has led to these amazing last 10 years of God's faithfulness and his goodness. As I look at my own story, I hope that you're looking at your story this morning and you're reminded of God's faithfulness to you because in the moments we doubt, what we need to know is we need to know that there is a God who is real and who is with us. Remember that very first dialogue between God and Gideon. God was trying to tell him, hey, Gideon, I am real and I'm going to be with you. And that's what you need to know today. So my, my challenge to you, my, my prayer for you is that you would know that God is real and that he is with us. For some of you today, maybe you don't know who Jesus is. Maybe you don't have a, a relationship with Jesus. You wouldn't call yourself a Christ follower or a Christian. My challenge to you today is to consider the importance of making that decision, of being a Christ follower. It's the most important decision you'll ever make. It was awesome. Last week we had several people fill out on those connect cards. I made a decision to follow Jesus. And we celebrate that. Maybe that's what you need to do today. If you have questions about what that means, feel free to come talk to myself, to one of our elders after the service. We'd love to or even the person who brought you along about what that means. It's a great decision to know that God is real, to know that he is with us. Secondly, in response, I think we need to look at our own hearts and examine our idolatry. I really kind of tried to challenge you guys a little bit and challenge myself a little bit on this earlier. But let's look to our own hearts today and examine idolatry. I know when I say that word idol, what you think of maybe is like this like, pagan statue with some incense burning and you're like, I don't have that in my house. Like If you came over to my house, you're not going to see that. But what you've got to realize is that idolatry is a lot more subversive than that now. There are shrines in our hearts other things. There are things that we set up in our hearts that are just as important as God or more important than God. And if you're wondering what you lean towards, think about it like this. What do you wake up thinking about? What do you go to sleep thinking about? What do you spend your time, your energy, your money on? Those are probably the things that you have a tendency towards leaning towards as idols in your life. So examine those things and remind yourself that God is the only true God. He is a jealous God. We see that in the story here. It wasn't enough for Gideon to just remove the idol. It had to be replaced. And the same is true in our lives. I don't know if you've read much in the Bible, but it talks about the fact that when when Israel, whenever they walked away and worshipped other gods, it, it says that Israel prostituted herself, on other gods. And that's strong language. But the reason that that strong language is used is because God is a jealous God. He's not a God who gives room for two. There isn't room for two in your heart. It's not room for two in my heart. And so just want to challenge you on that this morning. What has a tendency? What is it that could be an idol in your life? Psalms 139, King David wrote these words that I want to read for you. And I pray that this is our prayer this morning. Search me, O God, know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Listen to this. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting God. Life. Wouldn't that be our prayer this morning? Wouldn't that be our prayer this morning? Point out anything in me that offends you. I I just challenge you to make that prayer this morning. As we sing this next song here in a moment, pray that prayer. God, if there's anything that offends you, let me know what that is. Finally, in response, let's look to Jesus, our ultimate hero, and celebrate in his finished work. Now, I know I said finally, which means you may be thinking already about what you're about to eat for lunch, but just stay with me for a second, okay? really want to encourage you to think about who Jesus is and what he's done for you. As we look to Gideon and the fact that he didn't finish life well, honestly, I I read Gideon's story and I find it a little depressing. Because he did such great things for God and then he, you know, it just went all bad at the end. But that reminds us that Jesus didn't do that. He finished things well. He went through and he died on the cross for our sins. And that's something that's worth celebrating today. And so my hope is that you wouldn't be, walk out of here in despair at who you are, but you'd be, walk out of here at joy at who he is and who he can be in your life. Okay, does that make sense? So let's walk out of here knowing Jesus is good and he's done amazing things for us. When we think about Jesus and what he's done for us, when we think about the fact that he is the ultimate hero, that should put nothing but a smile on our face. There should be a spirit of such joy amongst us when we gather because of Jesus and what he's done, that it overflows in every part of our lives. And so my challenge to you, my challenge to me, is that we would be reminded of the goodness and grace of God as we walk out of this place here today. Let me pray for us, and then I'll give you guys some more direction.